Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I just wanted to make a small correction. Uh, this topic is not new. I didn't really pioneer it. It was discussed in religious texts for thousands of years. <laughs> and uh, what I'll try to describe is some new facts that we know about how the universe started. Uh, and perhaps it's time to revise the first chapter of Genesis. I completed a book that describes this uh, frontier, and it has a big question mark on the cover since we don't have answers to many of the questions. This topic has been in the realm of uh, theoretical calculations so far, but uh, the next decade promises to bring a lot of data. And that's why it's exciting. We can check, test our ideas and figure out whether there is some new physics that we need to introduce. So let me start with uh, a quote, an excerpt from uh, my book. And that has to do with our occupation. Um, and that includes all the astronomers in the audience and hopefully some of the young people that will become astronomers in the future. I get paid to think about the sky. One might naively regard such an occupation as carrying no practical significance. If an engineer underestimates the strain on a bridge, the bridge may collapse and harm innocent people. But if I calculate incorrectly the evolution of galaxies, these mistakes bear no immediate consequence for the daily life of other people. Is this really the case? The same engineer who designs bridges would be the first to correct this naive misconception. Newton arrived at his fundamental laws by studying the motion of planets around the sun. And these laws are now used to build bridges and many other products. Einstein's general theory of relativity was developed to describe the cosmos, but is also essential for achieving the required precision in modern navigation or GPS systems. But there is a bigger context to all of this. The universe is the biggest environment that we know of. And it's really important for us to get sort of a sense of the big picture um, because it gives us a practical advantage of having a more informed view of reality. So consider the weather, for example. If a person is born in a place that, uh, where it rains a lot, like England, uh, that person might complain about it. Uh, that person might associate the weather patterns with some divine entity that controls it. And uh, if it snows, it, it's even worse in a place like Boston. Um, but then, if we get a picture of the globe from a satellite, that gives us a different perspective about these climate patterns. And that allows us to understand why we see these patterns. And if we, we so desire, we might all move to Santa Barbara where the weather is beautiful, right? So... Having a bigger perspective is really important. It's important for giving us the correct balance in, in our views about reality. And so the big picture is really what cosmology is all about. And in this context, just um, a few months ago, 
we found out that uh, there are many planets that have the si a size comparable to that of the Earth. Uh, this is, these are results, the latest results, reported back in February by the Kepler satellite. And you can see here the number counts. Um, these are candidates, but most of them, 90 to 95%, are presumed to be real. And so there are many planets out there uh, around the other stars, some of which resemble the Earth in the sense that um, they do look as if they are rocky, just like the Earth. And the sun is not unusual. There are many stars in our galaxy. This is an image of a different galaxy. And the sun is simply located about 24,000 light years from the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And the Milky Way galaxy is one out of many. And so, by looking at the universe, we can get a perspective about this big environment of ours. Now, let me read a second excerpt from the book that has to do with theories and observations. A couple of years ago, my family and I visited the remote island of Tasmania, off the coast of Australia, known for its unspoiled natural environment. Upon our arrival at a secluded lodge near the beautiful Cradle Mountain Reserve, I discovered that there was no internet connectivity. When night settled in, I had a few hours to spare, the time that I ordinarily use to answer emails and check the daily postings of papers on the AstroPH archive. I stepped out of our cabin and looked around at the pristine, night, uh, pristine sight of nature left, left to its own. The night was dark with no city light anywhere on the horizon. Up on the sky was the magnificent view of the Milky Way galaxy stretched out in its full glory on a black background. For hours, I stared at our galaxy's stars, dust, globular clusters, Magellanic clouds, as well as its sister galaxy, Andromeda. And I realized at a deeper level that what we astronomers talk about truly exists out there. And that's a non-trivial realization for a theorist. I mean, observers look at the sky all the time. But I lived most of my life in city-like environments where you can't really see the Milky Way in its full glory. And to me, it was a very deep realization. I reported about that when I visited Caltech a few months later, and one of the observers there, Shri Kulkarni, tried to, uh, brought me to Palomar Observatory, trying to convert me into an observer. He thought that there is a potential of doing that. Uh, he was a bit naive in that regard. <laughs> and this is a view from Cradle Mountain. So the universe is the biggest environment that we have, and we can actually observe it. And you can ask, how did everything start? Turns out that the initial conditions of the universe can be summarized on a single sheet of paper. And we have that sheet of paper. This is something that we acquired over the past decade. We didn't know about it before. But basically, we have a set of numbers that we can feed into a computer and follow the laws of physics and then get what we see around us today. That's quite remarkable. That's a great success story. This is called the standard model of cosmology. We have a standard model, which has its unfortunate consequences that some young people believe in it as if it must be true, uh, 
although we don't know many things uh, in it. For example, we don't know the nature of most of the matter in the universe, the dark matter. And the evolution of the universe is characterized by a transition from simple initial conditions. These uh, initial conditions that I showed in the previous slide, in this slide, uh, basically encode everything we know about today. So all the politics, the biology, everything we see around us, for which we need thousands of books in libraries to describe properly, all of it is encoded in this set of numbers. Principle, if you fit these numbers into a computer, you should be able to get the complexity. You should be able to get U.S. politics today. Uh, <laughs> uh, and that's an interesting philosophical question. How is it possible that you start with something so simple and it gets so messy? And the answer is gravity. We have to blame gravity for all this, uh, the complex nature of, of reality nowadays. Of course, we are grateful for it because otherwise we wouldn't exist. We are complex uh, creatures. Uh, and basically, the universe is unstable. If you start with very small inhomogeneities in it, they grow with time and eventually make objects. And so this is an illustration of that. Early on, there were small perturbations in the universe, similar to low amplitude waves on the surface of a pond. And due to the attractive nature of gravity, regions that were slightly denser than the average attracted more matter into them and became even more dense. And eventually, such regions collapsed to make bound objects like the Milky Way galaxy, inside of which the gas cooled and fragmented into stars like the sun, next to which there was some debris left over from the formation of the sun, out of which the planets formed, like the Earth. So we can sort of understand the context of our existence in this global history. And we thank our existence to, to the gravitational instability that was set in early on. And you may ask, how much of this cosmic history do we actually know? And the answer is just a fraction of it. So the universe is expanding, and the expansion is similar to that of a balloon. Basically, if we look around us, uh, we see lots of galaxies, like the Milky Way galaxy. So you can paint the surface of a balloon. Uh, and as the balloon expands, the, these dots that represent galaxies get away from each other. Of course, we can reverse the movie and go backwards in time, and then the galaxies would eventually sit on top of each other. So clearly, the density of the universe was much higher early on, and the universe got diluted with time. So if we go backwards in time, there was a time when the density of matter was higher than the density of the Milky Way. There was a time when the density of matter was even higher than the density of the sun. Therefore, the sun or the Milky Way galaxy did not exist forever. They must have formed at some point in time, and that's what we are trying to understand. So we have a photo album of the universe. This is a photo album in which we have the first image in the form of the cosmic microwave background. 
that an image of the universe, when it first became transparent, uh, 400,000 years after the Big Bang, it was sufficiently cold for all the free electrons to combine with protons, make hydrogen atoms, and allow the universe to be transparent. And we see the radiation that was left behind from that event. And we can image the microwave background. So that's an actual image of it from which we can learn about the initial conditions in the universe at those early times, only 400,000 years after the Big Bang. We also have images of galaxies, like the Milky Way or other galaxies in our environment. We can go a little farther away and find galaxies that existed when the universe was a billion years old. But there is a gap in our understanding. There are some missing pages in this photo album of the universe. And what's the next decade will be dedicated to is obtaining these missing pages in the photo album of the universe. And obviously, the image of an adult is not a scaled-up version of the image of a fetus. And therefore, it's important to obtain these images. You want to understand how a fetus grows into an adult. And you might ask, how can we do that? How is it possible to look at our past? The reason is that light propagates at a finite speed. So, in fact, when we look at a mirror, we don't see an image of ourselves right now. We see an image a nanosecond ago because it takes light some time to bounce off our body to the mirror and back so that our eyes can see the reflection. And if you put the mirror far enough, it will take a while. So if you put it, like, uh, for example, 10 light years away, you would see yourself the way you looked 20 years ago. Uh, and if you look at sources of light far away, uh, very far from us, you basically see an image of those sources at the time when light left them, when they emitted the light that we see now. And they were much younger back then. So by looking deep into space, we can actually see images of how the universe looked like early on. It's just like doing archaeology. By digging deeper into the universe, we uncover more and more ancient layers. And of course, there is a limit to how far we can go. It's basically the age of the universe since the Big Bang, since everything started, times the speed of light. That's the size of the observable universe. And this is an illustration of the observable universe. We're located here. And by the way, we are not at the center of the universe. We're at the center of the observable universe for us. That's true for any observer. And we can see out to a distance that is equal to the time that elapsed since the Big Bang times the speed of light. There was an early period of time when the universe was opaque. So if we use telescopes, we can't look through that time. But the re most of the volume that we can see is actually observable. And you might ask, which fraction of this volume have we actually mapped so far? Those numbers that I mentioned early on about the initial conditions of the universe turn out to be based only on a tenth of a percent of this volume. So, so far we have mapped the distribution of matter only in a tenth of a percent, 10 to the minus 3 of the observable volume of the universe. There is a lot of work to do for the young people in the audience. 
we would like to observe as much as we can and learn about how things developed. And the reason it's such a small fraction is because the volume scales as the distance cubed. And most of our observations uh, are local. And the volume associated with the local region around us is very small compared to the volume far, far away. So the way to sample most of the volume is to go to very early times and map the distribution of matter there. And so far, we have done only calculations, theoretical calculations, simulations of what the conditions might have been like early on. So for example, before the first stars formed, we can start with the initial conditions that the microwave background provides us with, put it in a computer, and see how the very first stars form. And this is an illustration of a simulation that does just, like, just that. Uh, you start from initial cosmological conditions, and then the simulation is able to zoom into a region as big as a single star and see how matter assembles to make one of these very first stars. And typically, one finds that those very first stars were much more massive than the sun, roughly tens or hundreds times the mass of the sun. And massive stars end their life within a few million years. They have short lives. They could either explode in a supernova, or they can implode, if their mass is big enough, they will implode into a black hole. And it turns out that there are these so-called gamma-ray bursts, which are the brightest explosions in the universe, which take place when the core of a star collapses to make a black hole, and the material that is funneled into it, some fraction of it gets ejected in the form of jets that move close to the speed of light and drill a hole through the envelope of the star. And if the observer is situated at the right orientation, then the observer would see a flash of gamma rays. And we do observe these gamma ray bursts, so to speak, out to the edge of the universe. So in principle, we could see the uh, explosion or the jets associated with the collapse of a single star at the edge of the universe. Moreover, we can, I mean, in terms of, of those gamma ray bursts, people have tried to search for them over the past decade. We can actually see um, there was one burst that was reported 600 million years after the Big Bang. This is the most distant uh, source that was confirmed. And there is actually another one that uh, was found at uh, 500 million years after the Big Bang, which is currently the record holder. And people are able to find also galaxies very early on, roughly at the same time. Uh, this is one example of a galaxy that was reported uh, recently to have been detected when the universe was roughly 600 million years old. Um, the problem is that these galaxies are very difficult to find from the ground because the atmosphere uh, obscures our view. But fortunately, we have a space telescope, the Hubble Space Telescope, and by exposing deep 
for a long period of time, we can actually see the images of galaxies very far away. And there is a story related to this, to the so-called Hubble Deep Field. Uh, the director of the uh, Hubble Space Telescope uh, invited various astronomers at some point to advise him what to do with the discretionary time that he has. So he had a certain fraction of the time, the observing time, that he could do with uh, whatever he wants. And so different astronomers advised him to do different things. They wanted him to use the telescope for their own science. And there was no consensus. And then uh, in the afternoon, one of the astronomers out of desperation suggested that maybe the Hubble Space Telescope, maybe we should do just the dumbest thing, which is to point in a random direction in the sky and expose for as long as possible. Turned out that just because of the disagreement they did that, turned out to be the most, one of the most important uh, results that came out of the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, which is uh, to obtain the deepest images that we have of the universe. And in those images, we can see galaxies that existed all the way back to when the universe was only 500 million years old. Not really the very first galaxies, but close to that. These galaxies typically look very red um, and small. You can see some examples of these galaxies here. And uh, this is actually the most deep image that we have right now with the Hubble Space Telescope. There are some galaxies that have these circles that are the earliest ones that we know about. And you might ask, which fraction of the stars that we see nowadays formed at these early times? So when the universe was less than a billion years old, only 1% of the stars that we find nowadays existed back then. And you can simply do a census of how many stars per unit volume we find at those early times compared to today. You find roughly 1% when the universe was younger than a billion years less than 7% of its present age. And the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope is the James Webb Space Telescope, and that's a mock uh, of that telescope. It's not the real one. Uh, with the team that worked hard to uh, design it and, and produce it, um, and it's expected to be launched in about uh, seven years. There is a substantial delay due to budget overruns. Um, this, uh, the, the diameter of the mirror of this, this segmented uh, telescope is six and a half meters. And we, it will be put in an L2 orbit. And one of the main objectives of this telescope, I participated in one of the early science working groups for this telescope. Uh, one of the main objectives is to image deep uh, into the universe to find the evidence for the very first galaxies that formed in it. And since this telescope will be out of uh, the influence of the atmosphere of the Earth, it will be able to see very, very far away. And of course, there are plans also to build big telescopes, the next generation of big telescopes on the ground. And here are the three designs, the three uh, projects that are competing at the moment. Um, there is, uh, the, I mean, California is primarily involved in the 30-meter telescope right here in the middle which is an, an, an expanded version of the Keck telescope, the 10-meter telescope. It, it is constructed out of many, many small segments. Uh, there is a bigger version that the Europeans are working on that uh, has 42 meters in diameter. 
As it turns out, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but the Europeans are starting to be more ambitious in uh, scientific research than the U.S., and that's an alarming trend. Uh, I urge my colleagues to counter that uh, trend. Uh, it used to be true that the U.S. was leading the way for many, many decades, and we should maintain that. Um, and then there is also the design of the um, giant Magellan Telescope that also has a partner here, uh, not far from here in Pasadena, the Carnegie Observatories, uh, that is uh, made of seven mirrors. And it's the, mod the most modest among these designs that altogether has an aperture that which, uh, with a diameter of 24 and a half meters or so. Now, in addition to these telescopes, big telescopes, either in space or on the ground, we're constructing radio arrays, arrays of radio antennas, lots of antennas that resemble the type of antennas that you would buy for TV reception in a radio shack about two decades ago. You just put a lot of them and correlate, and then you can image the hydrogen that fills up the universe with these arrays of radio dipoles. And this is an illustration from a Scientific American article that I wrote in which you can see sort of the first sources of light producing uh, what we call uh, regions in which the gas is broken into its uh, constituent electrons and protons. And uh, the hydrogen is simply eliminated in the regions around the first sources of light. So if you are mapping hydrogen, you would see these cavities surrounding the first galaxies and later on groups of galaxies. And eventually, the entire medium uh, is expected to be fully uh, broken into electrons and protons. So the hydrogen atom is the simplest atom we know about. It has a proton in the middle and an electron orbiting around it. But there is uh, a property of the proton and the electron that quantum mechanics uh, um, allows, and that's called the spin of the particle. You can think about it classically as some way of some angular momentum or some uh, rotation of the particle around its axis, but quantum mechanically, it's not really that because the, the spin is quantized. Um, at any event, the spin can be either up or down for the proton or the electron, and if the two spins are lined up, you get a different energy state of the electron because of the spin-spin interaction compared to a situation where the spin is anti-aligned. And when the spin of the electron flips, uh, the electron can radiate uh, a light particle, a photon, with a wavelength of 21 centimeters. So this is called the 21 centimeter line of hydrogen. And uh, there is a long history of this line. It was detected observationally first at uh, Harvard by a physicist um, named Ed Purcell that simply, after the line was predicted to exist, simply opened the window in his office, stuck a horn antenna through the window, and looked at the sky, and he found, of course, this line that was predicted theoretically. Um, and there is still a plaque next to that window uh, ded dedicating the, uh, that window to, to this important discovery. And that's an a good example for the interplay between theory and observations. Uh, some of the things that the theorists are talking about can really be found out there. Many other things are not found, and I will not describe them today. 
and so by mapping the hydrogen, one is actually able to map uh, these holes in the hydrogen in three dimensions because there is a particular wavelength to, the, to this line of hydrogen when it's emitted. But because the universe is expanding, this wavelength is getting stretched so that the observer sees a wavelength that is larger. And by observing the radiation at different wavelengths, we're actually seeing different emission times. And we can image the hydrogen in the universe in three dimensions. And this, this is similar to slicing Swiss cheese that has holes in it. By slicing it, you can get a sense of how big the holes are. And that's what we were trying to do with these arrays of dipole antennas. So let me show you how these holes are simulated to have grown using the best uh, computer simulations that we have. What you see here in red, these regions of broken hydrogen. And they grow in size as time goes on, and eventually they fill up the entire volume. This is called the process of reionization, when the universe was ionized, meaning that the hydrogen was broken into its constituent uh, electrons and protons. And these are the arrays of dipoles. This is one of them. Um, that is constructed in Western Australia. Uh, the goal is to have eventually 500 tiles, each containing uh, 16 dipoles like that. Uh, and we might have to compromise because of budgetary cuts uh, to have only 128 or so. Um, but the, these antenna uh, look just like those uh, TV reception antennas that were used back in the 60s. There are just many of them that are correlated, and only today we have the computers that allow us to correlate them. So that's why these experiments are done only now. And that's a theorist view of what the signal should look like. Uh, this axis here uh, in the horizontal direction is distance from the observer, looking back in time. And the vertical axis is actually on the sky, and early on, the hydrogen was smoothly distributed. Uh, the blue color means that the brightness of the hydrogen was weaker than that of the microwave background at that time. And then once the first stars were lit up, they heated up the hydrogen so that it became brighter than the cosmic microwave background. And that appears here in, in red. But at the same time, the stars produced these cavities where they destroyed the hydrogen. They broke it into electrons and protons. And then the signal eventually petered out and disappeared. And we are trying to obtain this, this image. But the simplest thing we can do is average across the sky and simply look at the brightness, the average brightness of the sky as a function of distance from us or as a function of wavelength. It's just like obtaining a spectrum of the sky. And that's illustrated here. That's the kind of spectrum that one would expect, theoretically, as a result of the formation of the first galaxies. And this is the frequency that we would expect to observe it at. And this is called the global 21 centimeter signal. So it turns out that this experiment was done. Uh, most of the community actually works on trying to image the sky in three dimensions. But a group of two people decided to do a daring experiment using just a single dipole 
integrating across the sky with a budget of, that is two orders of magnitude smaller than the budget of these big groups. And the reason I bring this up is because in astronomy it's quite encouraging that you can do innovative science with modest budgets. Bigger is not necessarily better. Smart, smarter is always better. <laughs> Bigger is not necessarily better. And there is no age discrimination in this context. You can see here one of the experimentalists is actually a retired astronomer uh, that is considered a genius by his peers. And uh, he's collaborating with a very young person. So uh, his name is Alan Rogers from Haystack Observatory. He's collaborating with Judd Bauman from Arizona State University. They have done this experiment. They got the first result that constrains the global 21 centimeter signal just a few months ago. And they concluded that this process of rayonization, the, the breaking of the hydrogen into constituent electrons and protons, was not sudden. It was not abrupt. Uh, it must have ha taken some time to, uh, to complete. And they have quantitative numbers, uh, basically, on this time. So that's the work that is being done about the past. Let me uh, now move on to the future of the universe, which is uh, a subject that I describe at the end of my, of my book. And this relates to a paper that I wrote uh, more than 10 years ago when the universe was found to actually not just expand, but was found to accelerate ex its expansion. So the expansion is not at a steady rate. The, the rate of expansion is actually growing up with time. And then I, in, in the shower, I thought about what might be the consequences of that for the future. And I wrote, within a day, I wrote a paper about it. And uh, since then, wrote several other papers on it. So let me just briefly describe what the future holds. And I should say that this is not speculative in any way. We are just using the laws of physics with the most conservative set of assumptions about the parameters of the universe. The same set of assumptions that describe to the best of our knowledge, the past history of the universe. So there is nothing speculative about that. Previous generations of scholars have occasionally wondered about the long-term future of the universe. Or in biblical Hebrew, the forecast for um, the end of times. For the first time in history, we now have a standard cosmological model that I described before, which agrees with a large body of data about the past history of the universe to an unprecedented precision. This model also makes scientific predictions about the future. Every time an American president delivers the State of the Union address, I imagine what it would be like to hear a supplementary comment about the State of the Universe surrounding the nation, the Union. It is, of course, completely natural for a president to focus on issues affecting re-election on a four-year timescale, while ignoring cosmological events that take billions of years to develop. Nevertheless, I find it amusing to imagine a brief statement about the bigger picture, especially when we have gained a significant, significantly better understanding of our future in the cosmos than previous generations of astronomers had. And since cosmologists reached a major milestone of this quality over the past decade, 
let us consider this uh, future. So, as I mentioned, if this is us, or the US, it doesn't really matter how you read it, uh, and we look at a distant galaxy far away from us, we currently see this galaxy receding away from us. And Hubble already discovered that um, about uh, 90 years ago. But as time goes on, the speed by which the galaxy is receding away from us grows. And eventually the galaxy would move away from us at a speed greater than the speed of light. So even light that is emitted by that galaxy will never be able to reach us. And turns out that this fate describes all the distant sources that we see nowadays. And you can ask, up to which age will we be able to communicate or to see those distant galaxies? And the farther away they are, it turns out that the shorter is the age up to which we will be able to see them. So I calculated, for example, if we look at a distant galaxy, I calculated how far into its future will we be able to track its history. It turns out that, for example, um, a galaxy beyond uh, what astronomers call redshift of two uh, is already out of contact. We cannot really send a, a text message to an extraterrestrial civilization out there and hope that it will receive it because right now it's already moving relative to us faster than light. And the reason we see its image is because that image was emitted a while ago. But if we were to wait and to see its image the way it's emitted now, we will never be able to see it. And that's true for all the galaxies that are beyond the redshift of two. So we will never be able to communicate with extraterrestrials beyond a certain distance. We will not be able to do extragalactic astronomy. So people that like studying our galaxy are still happy. They can continue to do that. But all the cosmologists in the audience, of course, if they were to live that long, they will have to change their occupation because they won't be able to observe the universe. All these galaxies will exit from our horizon in the distant future. And the analogy, again, is with a balloon. So space is the balloon that is expanding. And you can imagine that photons or particles of light, behave; they move at a finite speed, just like ants walking on the surface of this balloon. So the ants have some speed by which they walk around the surface. And if the balloon is expanding faster than the ants can walk, they will visit a limited area on the surface of the balloon. So the same is true about radiation. Radiation can traverse a, a tiny bit of the universe if it's accelerating. We will never be able to see all the galaxies that exit from that region simply because they are moving faster than these ants, and therefore we, the ants will not be able to reach us from the, those distant regions. And there is no contradiction with uh, um, the special theory of relativity. Uh, these galaxies are not really moving faster than the speed of light. They are not moving at all locally. It's just space itself 
is being blown up. And they are sitting still, but space itself is separating, for example, us from them at an ever-increasing speed. And that's allowed. Space can expand at an arbitrary speed. There is no limit on that because it uh, carries no, no information. So you might ask, okay, so which galaxies will stay within our view? Which galaxies will remain bound to us in the distant future? So I was wondering about this, and so I, I convinced a postdoc in our group to actually do the calculation. And we basically put initial conditions similar to what we see around us in the distribution of galaxies and asked the question, how many of them will, be, will remain bound to us so that we can see them once the universe will age by a factor of 10? Okay? And the answer is only one, our galaxy. None of the galaxies that we see far away from us, beyond the, the so-called local group, of the Milky Way and Andromeda will remain bound to us. All of these galaxies will exit from our horizon once the universe will age by a factor of 10. And this local group that is now composed of the Milky Way and Andromeda will actually be one big galaxy because we can see Andromeda approaching us. And the Milky Way is about to collide with the Andromeda galaxy. In the not-too-distant future, in fact, before the sun, the sun will burn out. So, in collaboration with another postdoc, we decided to actually simulate the merger between the Milky Way and Andromeda. Most astronomers are not interested in the future because they cannot observe it right now. And they are very practical people, as you know. <laughs> but... I was curious what the future will hold. And you can just start with the conditions that you see nowadays and let the two galaxies come together. It turns out that the collision will take place during the lifetime of the sun. The night sky will obviously change. Right now we can see the Milky Way galaxy as a strip of stars on the sky simply because the Milky Way is a disk galaxy. When Andromeda will come over, it will be another disk of galaxies of, of, of uh, stars that would look, uh, that will not necessarily be aligned with the Milky Way galaxy. We will see basically two disks, the second one looming across the, the sky, and eventually the two galaxies will merge together and we will end up with one big spherical blob of stars. So the night sky will change, and we simulated this with a computer code. And this is, I can say, the only paper of mine that has a chance of being cited uh, in a few billion years. And that's the configuration. We have the Milky Way on the left and the Andromeda Galaxy on the right. That's its sister galaxy. It has properties very similar to the Milky Way. And they're heading on a collision course. So let me show you what will happen. What you see here is on the left the distribution of gas and on the right the distribution of stars as time goes on and the movie starts all over again and you see the Milky Way approaching Andromeda and here the stars get mixed together and you end up with what astronomers call uh, is an elliptical galaxy, a, sphere, a roughly spherical blob of stars 
that is a result of a merger of two disk galaxies. And since we mentioned that remnant many times in the paper, I had to give it a name, so I decided to call it Milcomeda, which is a mix of the Milky Way and Andromeda. At the time I checked, the web didn't have any mention of this name, but by now the, the, the actually, there is actually a website, uh, milcomeda.com or something like that. And one can ask, how does the merger take, take place? So it turns out that the two galaxies, and this actually here, the history goes back five billion years into the past, and then today the two galaxies are approaching each other, and within two billion years, they will pass next to each other. Uh, they will not merge immediately. They will have to come back again, and within five billion years, they will definitely make one single galaxy. And an interesting question is what will happen to the sun in this process? So here we put uh, stars. These are the red dots on a ring that has a, a distance from the center of the Milky Way that is equal to the distance of the sun from the Milky Way. We wanted to see what will happen to the, those stars. And as the two galaxies uh, get close to each other, of course, the ring becomes very thick and gets distorted and eventually, you end up with most of the stars being spread to a distance that is a few times bigger than the current distance of the sun, of the sun from the center of the Milky Way galaxy. So the most likely outcome is that the sun will be pushed out from the center of the merger remnant. But nothing bad will happen to the planets. So let me summarize the highlights of what I described. I uh, discussed the past of the universe and the fact that we currently have a lot of data that tells us how the universe started, mainly derived from the cosmic microwave background, but we have a lot of volume to explore in the future. And in this context, ideas that were previously in the realm of religion if you look at the uh, first chapter of Genesis, and I can actually read it in Hebrew and understand all of it, you can actually compare it to the modern version. And many of the ideas there, I mean, there is one idea that happens to be uh, confirmed by the current model of cosmology, which is that there was a beginning in time when everything started. Einstein, for example, preferred to believe in the philosophical idea that um, the universe existed forever, but then he realized that his equations do not admit a solution that is stable and uh, steady. And so he was forced by his equations to the realization that there must have been a beginning in time. So religious ideas about the early history of the universe are now modified by science. We, ha we know more about the universe. We can appreciate to a better precision how everything started. But then if you consider the future of the universe, turns out that the merger between the Milky Way and Andromeda, or Milcomeda, is the only galaxy that will remain visible to us in the very distant future. And once the universe will age by a factor of 10, we will not be able to see any other galaxy. So then, subsequent uh, generations of astronomers will not be able to validate 
the standard cosmological model. They will not have any galaxies to look at. The microwave background will be extremely faint and actually unobservable because at some point the wavelength of the radiation will be bigger than the horizon itself once the universe becomes a trillion years old, a hundred times the present age of the universe. The wavelength of the microwave background would be bigger than the size of the universe. At that point, the Big Bang model will not be verifiable. So there will be all these scientific, so-called scientific texts, textbooks, talking about the Big Bang, telling us a story that we can never, we cannot validate. So the question that I ask myself is will cosmology turn into a religion at that point? Because basically we will have no way of testing whether this history really took place. And that's a serious concern. <laughs> so we had a very tough winter in New England this year. And uh, in January, there was one day where uh, it was snowing very heavily. The snow was very deep. And Harvard, was, Harvard University, for the first time in the past maybe 20 years, was closed for that day. There were no classes, so the president of the university decided the university is closed. So I stayed at home. All the appointments were canceled. Suddenly I have a free day to think, right? So that's unusual. Um, and I started thinking about this question. Will cosmology really not be verifiable in the distant future? That's a depressing thought. And I realized that that's... Not the case. I mean, you might think that once the universe ages by a factor of 100, the wavelength of the microwave background will be bigger than the size of the horizon, so there will be no radiation left over from the Big Bang. There will be actually a constant electric field across the entire universe. So even in principle, we will not be able to measure the microwave background, irrespective of how sophisticated our instruments are. And at that time, there will not be even a single proton outside our galaxy. Nothing, because everything will be pushed away from us outside the galaxy that is held together by its own gravity. So this might lead you to conclude that there will be no way of figuring out that the universe actually expanded. But then I realized that our galaxy ejects stars. These are called hypervelocity stars, and we know about them. Once every 100,000 years, there is a star being ejected by the black hole at the center of our galaxy. And these stars are ejected at speeds that exceed 1,000 kilometers per second, so they can escape from our galaxy. So these stars are actually not bound to our galaxy, and they shine... And if we were to monitor them, we would be able to see that they're pushed away from the Milcomeda galaxy by the same force that accelerates the expansion of the universe. So there will be extragalactic sources of light. These would be the stars that escape from the Milcomeda galaxy. And we will be able, by monitoring them, to figure out that they expand at an accelerated rate. And we can do cosmology with these stars. Uh, we can measure the mass density of the vacuum just by seeing how quickly they accelerate. 
the way we do it nowadays with galaxies. We can estimate the density of matter at the time when Milcomeda was assembled and figure out the average density of the universe at that time. We can figure out the age of the universe from the age of the stars, the oldest stars in, in uh, Milcomeda. The reason that stars will still be there is that most of the stars in our galaxy are actually much lighter than the sun. If you consider a star that is 10% of the mass of the sun, that star has a lifetime of 4 trillion years. So these stars will still be around in the very distant future. And most of the stars around us are like that. The sun is a, modest, a relatively massive star among all the stars that exist in the Milky Way galaxy. So we could use these ejected stars to probe the expansion of the universe to figure out that, in fact, in the past, the universe must have had more matter in it, and we can figure out the age of the universe from the age of those stars that we find in Milcomeda. So cosmology will be possible at least for the next few trillion years. Thank you. The question was, um, what will happen to the sun? Uh, the sun will obviously, eventually, um, expand in a way that will not allow our planet to survive. Uh, but uh, beyond that, will there be any impact of the collision between the Milky Way and Andromeda on the planetary system, uh, our solar system? Uh, the answer is that, the, first of all, the merger between uh, the Milky Way and Andromeda will not bring stars much closer to the sun than we currently have because uh, the characteristic density of stars in the Andromeda galaxy is similar to the density of stars in the Milky Way. And you basically, at most, increase the flux of stars passing next to the sun by a factor of two, and that's not a big factor. So stars will not come very close as a result of this merger. With respect to the sun, uh, effect, the, the solar effect on the survival of the Earth, um, the sun, of course, will evolve and its luminosity will change and that could impact the climate here on Earth. And uh, the prediction is not easy to make because um, it involves also the response of the, the biosphere, the, the atmosphere of the Earth to that, those changes. Um, but it's clear that within five to seven billion years from now, the sun will become a giant and will engulf a substantial volume around it that may reach almost the orbit of, of uh, the Earth. And the latest calculations indicate that maybe the Earth will not be uh, um, overtaken by this expansion. But it's clear that we will have to occupy another planet somewhere else. And uh, there is plenty of time for us to design a vehicle that will bring us there. I'm not worried about that. The question was, um, how is it that um, we are not at the center of the universe, yet the universe appears to be expanding around any other point the same way? And the analogy that is often brought in this context is with cake, a cake that is rising, that is full of raisins. 
Uh, and as the cake is rising, all the raisins get away from each other. And it doesn't matter where you are within that. So you can imagine sort of an infinite cake full of raisins. The raisins are the galaxies that is rising in an oven, and then the galaxies are obviously receding away from each other. You see everything uh, expanding away from you in that situation. And of course, the raisins are the galaxies. The cake is space in this context. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.